I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Hey, and welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. Today, I have a personal celebrity who I have been a a major admirer of her career from the background for a long time. I'm super excited to have her here. Courtney Snowden, what is your job title? Well, now it's CEO and president of my own firm called the Blueprint Strategy Group, named after my very favorite Jay-Z album, honestly. I love it. Yeah. So that was not a helpful answer, though, for why I'm such a fangirl. What do you do, Courtney Snowden? Yeah, so what I say is I build relationships and move policy for a living. So I am a lobbyist and government affairs professional. I build community and community engagement partnerships, all with an eye towards moving public policy that makes the world a better place. And obviously, I'm guessing you're a staunch conservative, right? So all this within the GOP. Exactly. Yeah, I am a card-carrying Democrat, although I've had a few stints as an independent and as a Republican, actually, um, mostly to make my dad angry, if, the, if I'm really honest. Uh, but I'm a good, solid Democrat. I would say I'm a business-friendly Democrat, though. I'm, while I have some progressive tendencies, I believe in the power of business to also change people's lives. Awesome. And, okay, so... How, how does that happen? How do you go, how does one start, uh, start wind up being a machinator, a creator, a policy, an influencer? I mean, I have friends, Courtney, but nobody listens to me when it comes to public policy. What yeah, do they do? Know, I don't know that people listen to me all the time either. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we've known each other since college. So, you know, I majored in political science um, and really actually became a car carrying Democrat when I was at Beloit, honestly. Um, and worked for a member of Congress from Wisconsin, Tammy Baldwin, now Senator Tammy Baldwin from the great state of Wisconsin, uh, and worked for her, had an opportunity to learn so much from her, follow her all around the district. And then she gave me a job when I graduated from college. It was my first job out of college. Um, And then bounced around in a bunch of different nonprofits, the National PTA, the Human Rights Campaign, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, all where I focused on high quality civil rights and education policy. So making communities safer for LGBT, LGBTQ people across the country, uh, be it uh, lobbying and supporting the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and now gender identity, still has not passed. Um, now it's called the Equality Act, actually. Uh, I've worked on hate crimes or legislation to create enhanced penalties for hate crimes. Most of my career that passed and, and was signed into law under the Obama administration um, was worked to make sure that all young people had access to high quality education uh, and then went to a firm where I got introduced to corporate work in a meaningful way. And I got to work on all sorts of diverse issues that really I had no expertise or any business working in, but financial services, antitrust and mergers, intellectual property, all that fun stuff, which doesn't seem fun, but is is really um, sort of an education how money moves in this country. And money, while money is not always equal to power and it's not always power, usually when you're in a room with powerful people, there's some money in the room. And so understanding commerce and business and how money moves changed my world completely. I got a little sick of that, honestly. 
and decided to run for office and ran for city council. You remember I did that in college too, yeah. uh, but I lost. And it was probably one of the best losses of my life because I ultimately became deputy mayor for greater economic opportunity in my hometown of Washington, DC. I say the best city on earth. Um, and did that for about four years for an amazing female mayor, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser, who I will say to anyone on any day is the absolute best at taking on Donald Trump. She did his entire presidency beautifully. Uh, and then went to a tech company called Juul. They make an e-cigarette product that had some controversy and then decided to start my own thing. Um, I think as I get older and more into my forties, um, I started to, I wanted to own my time in a different way and I wanted to be available for my kids in a different way. So I decided to launch a firm and that's what I love to do now two kiddos as well on top of taking over the world like you also managed to do all that while being a, a single mom of two which is amazing mom of two, yeah I have a four-year-old and a 12-year-old my 12-year-old is going on uh 35 and he might have a death wish most days uh and my four-year-old four is such a good age because they're little balls of love the problem I mean, is they're also attention suckers see, my four-year-old is in this like like a moody, like emo teenager kind of yes. place where like everything, everything, oh girl, everything is the end of the damn world. I, mommy didn't get more of whatever the cereal was he wanted today. Big, ugly tears. And it's not like crocodile tears. Like actually his little heart has broken over a lack of fucking Captain Crunch. Look what you did, mom. That's yes. right. Yeah, they're, they're unreasonable little terrorists. They are. They terrorize us. Oh my God. Yeah. But they're so, the thing about it, and I'm sure this is true for you. I feel like every mother says this. You know, I think most women lie about being a mom, like the experience of it, right? Because most people talk about it like rainbows and like happy and joy. And, you know, there's that, but I call those the moments, right? Those are the in between moments. Most of it is no, stop, don't do that. Ah, temper tantrum, right? Um, but the moments where they are little balls of love yeah. and, Literally the first time you meet them, I feel like it changes your perspective on absolutely everything. I, I couldn't agree more. And I actually, I think of those as the glue. Yeah. Because without those moments, it all falls, falls apart. Absolutely. I couldn't deal with just yelling at somebody all the damn time. I need those moments where they yeah. curl up in my lap and yes. say, mama, I love you. Yes. Be like, okay, all right. I cannot hate your face right now. Yes, can, I cannot hate your face right now. We can do my this for another day. My baby boy spoons, he'll be the big spoon, which I think is so funny. He gets in my bed every night at 3 a.m. Every night. Can't stop it. And I'm over trying to stop it. And then he put he spoons and he then he kisses me and he says, I love you. And then he goes to sleep. It's the sweetest oh, thing ever. We cage our children into their room so that they cannot do that. I really I have wish stairs. I, I have stairs. And I so really wish I could. I mean, where there's a will, Courtney. Am I right? <laughs> um, I didn't sleep train, it was a problem. So back to work. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about a bunch of the things that you touched on. So first of all, let's start with how you got started. One of the things we hear a lot, um, and I know you're passionate about access to everybody. One of the things that you hear a lot about life in politics and policy and that sort of thing is it takes a shit ton of privilege just to get on that ladder. Yeah. Right. Like, so for me, I majored in international law. I had grand designs of working at the UN doing blah, blah, blah. And then my parents were like, and how are you going to pay <laughs> for those many years of unpaid internship time internship? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, 
I mean, I could work in HR. That would do it. <laughs> and like, that right. was it for me. And it is for a lot of people. Yeah. And I come from more privilege than tons of people. Yeah. So talk to me about, is that real as a perception that it is all privilege? And, and, and what are people like you doing about it? Because I can't believe you're not doing things about it. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I came from a relatively privileged background. Um, my dad's a PhD, played professional football. Both are government employees most of my life. I grew up in a beautiful neighborhood in DC among the flower streets. If you had to think about my life, it probably would look a lot like the Cosby show growing up. Um, and, you know, I think a couple things, right? My parents weren't rich. They were comfortable. They could buy everything they wanted and they took good care of us. But, you know, they were civil servants, basically, right? Um, so they were never making three and $400,000 a year. My dad played long before I was born. So I think the most he ever made, not that it's not a lot of money, is $90,000 a year playing football. He wasn't making $46 million a season, for example, right? So I think a couple of things. One, I have always known I was going to go in politics. When I was a little girl, I did a project about Thurgood Marshall when I was in the second grade. And I thought, I'm going to be a Supreme Court justice. And Ann Davies, Professor Ann Davies was like, I don't think you're going to be a Supreme Court justice. I now have some choice words for her about that. But her point was not wrong in that. Her point was I shouldn't rely that I have to broaden my dreams because too many people have control over whether or not you can become a Supreme Court justice. But her delivery didn't sound that way to me when she said it to me in college. Um, yeah, I think Certainly, there is a privilege to take an unpaid internships. Certainly, there is a privilege. And I did. I worked unpaid for Tammy Baldwin um, one summer. It was the worst and best summer of my life in Madison. I was broke as a joke. Literally, I would buy two packs of ramen noodles, two packs of Kraft macaroni and cheese. And that, last, that would last me for two weeks. Wow. My mother would only pay my rent. And my girlfriend at the time lived in Chicago and we still had to pay for long distance phone calls. So my bill was like super expensive. That's like a thousand dollars. My mom was like, I'm not paying that. No, I pay your rent. So I had a job at the Gap and I probably only got 10 hours a week. And so I was on the struggle bus. But what I will say about that struggle is it was a demonstration to me that I'm willing to put up with difficult things to get what I want. One. Mm -hmm. And two, all of that was character building. The stories I had from that summer are unbelievable even today. And three, it got me my job, my first job, which landed me on this in this trajectory, this career tra trajectory. But there is a movement to make sure that people, that members of Congress and advocacy organizations and others pay interns as opposed to requiring them to do that body of work for free. Yeah. And I do think it's an important movement, right? What, some of the best ideas, some of the best public policy solutions come from people who are experiencing the challenge. And too often there's a separation between our elected officials um, and the problems, right? It's been a long time since I've been broke, right? I was broke that summer. It's been a long time, you know, I've never had to live in a housing project or had to rely on government assistance, thankfully. But I'm always open to interested in listening to people who have that experience because they are the ones who can tell you how to improve the policy around it. And so I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't create pathways for people of every socioeconomic status to get into public life and public service because some of the best, if not all of the best ideas come from the people who are impacted by the policies. Well, I think that's part of the, the charm that is AOC, right? Is that she she was a bartender and like, she is not intimidated by anybody because she has de dealt with drunks in New York City <laughs> yes. for years. You know what yeah. I mean? 
I've thrown people out at closing time. I can handle whatever you can bring. And yeah. so, but I think that one of the things that she's really known for is this whole, everybody on her staff gets living wage. Yeah. Nobody is there out of privilege. And I think that that's really interesting. I think it's interesting how the media handles that because you hear it every once in a while. And then it's just like, oh, AOC, what are you going to do? But it's like one of like the many like virtues that makes up the pillar that is, you know, that we've placed her on in some ways, as opposed to being part of an actual dialogue about, yeah. wait a minute, why the fuck isn't everybody? Yeah. Why do we have people, you know, eight people living in a tiny apartment because that's how they can afford to do this kind of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing, the tough thing is, look, I, I think ALC injects such important discourse, right? Mm -hmm. Her viewpoint, her, um, her commitment to people, her commitment to ensuring that people can live successfully, no matter sort of their situation, that they can have access to a fair wage, high quality jobs, good benefits, and a social safety net that will support them. All that's really important. I do think there are times though, and she can do that, we should be clear, she can do that because of the district she represents, yeah. right? If she was in a different district, she could not believe those things, right? You think about a Kirsten Gillibrand before she ran for Senate. She was in a more conservative district. Her politics changed substantially when she became a Senator, right? Mm. Just look at her voting record on guns, for example. The thing that I think is interesting though is when you are too far on the polar opposites, compromise becomes in incredibly difficult. And there are credible arguments on the other side. I was very proud in DC government to have led the effort to secure minimum wage at $15 an hour in the District of Columbia. It's a big win. There are some drawbacks to it. Just like I was, I was a huge proponent of decriminalizing marijuana, but there've been some real complications as a result of this, right? And people don't talk about those parts. So if I am a new business owner and I have to pay $15 an hour to start my business, the cost of creating a business becomes significantly higher. Absolutely. Well, what does that mean for black, brown, and black, brown, and, and black and brown people and women who have, who tend to start businesses with far less capital than their white male counterparts? And have less access to investment oh. and banks and all of that. Absolutely. And so that, that's really interesting. On the marijuana front, that's kind of, the Freakonomics last week, I'm a big Freakonomics fan. Yeah. The Freakonomics last week happened to be about marijuana. I don't know if you listened to it, um, mm -hmm. but that was not actually something that they covered. And that's the kind of thing they normally would. So talk yeah. to me about like, what are the drawbacks with the legalized weed? Yeah, so here's what's interesting. Just to be clear, DC does not have legal weed. People think we do, we have decriminalized weed. Um, so you, you and because of our, our relationship to Congress, it has been, we have had to be very innovative in how we have thought about regulating commerce around marijuana because federally marijuana is still illegal, right? Mm -hmm. um, but here's the problem. So when I was in the District of Columbia government, one of the agencies that reported to me was the Department of Employment Services. I ran the district's workforce system. Well, there's still a lot of jobs where you can't test positive for marijuana. Mm -hmm. But if in particular, young people under 25, under 30, if they hear weed is decriminalized and they voted on it on the ballot, then they think they can smoke weed and there not be any repercussions as a result of it, except that's not right. Which is not an unreasonable. It's not unreasonable. Conclusion it's not unreasonable at all. The problem, yeah, the problem is it doesn't matter what they think is unreasonable. The fact yeah. is you can't, there's certain you can't drive a Metro bus if you test positive for marijuana. You can't go on a military base 
and work. You can't get many federal jobs, which is what we have in DC, right? And you can't get into most of our city paid for city run training programs for employment training, right? Because you have to test positive because the federal dollars that help to support that require it. So the unintended consequence is that a whole, um, in DC, a large group of African-Americans and Hispanic residents can't access our programs or lose jobs because we have decriminalized marijuana without enough education around what that means. Or without doing it for real. I think that's my frustration with a lot of policy, and I think a lot of people's are as well, is that it seems like because we are beholden to compromise, we half-ass a lot of shit. And so if we're going to decriminalize marijuana, then we need to just decriminalize it and stop with the, like, almost decriminalized sort of if you squint and, like, it's on a third Sunday of the month. That requires the feds. Oh, no, I get it. Like, I understand where that is, but it's just frustrating. And if it's frustrating for me, it's just a human. I can imagine from your perspective, you must, it must be so hard that every win never feels like a hundred percent of a win. Except that when you're in this business, when you win, it is a hundred percent of a win. So in this business, look, I I build relationships, I move policy. And I compromise. That's the thing. I, I compromise for a living, right? I think yeah. about what it, what can we get, what gets us the best possible deal so that we can come back and fight another day, mm-hmm. right? There are 535 members of Congress. There are 535 different interests that they have to, that we all, that all of us who move policy have to appeal to. Um, and when thinking about that, the key is figuring out both how you can count votes. How do you get to 218 in the House? How do you get to 51 or 60 in the Senate? And and what, what compromises are you willing to make? And so what I always say to clients and what I've always said in my career is that the thing you have to think about is what you could dream of. This is why I, this is why I love AOC. AOC gives you what you dream of, right? The Green New Deal might be what people dream about. Can't, it, it'd be very hard to pass that, right? Because they're, again... You almost said you can't pass it. Anything is possible, but yeah, good catch. My daddy used to say, anybody can win on any given Sunday, right? Football, right? Anybody can win on any given Sunday, but it's not likely, you know? Like, (laughs) anybody can win, but that's probably not what happened. So, you know, it's possible, but but to me, we have to have aspirational pieces of legislation. We have to know where we're trying to get to. I mean, I know a lot of people were very disappointed with Obamacare, and now that I have to pay for my own insurance, I get it, right? But the fact is, we couldn't get what we wanted. We couldn't get a public option. It would not have made it through crime. We barely got Obamacare, and it was the Republicans' idea, their idea in the first place, right? But you, you take what you can get and you come back to fight another day. So we've gotten Obamacare done. It is the law of the land. It has stood up to multiple Supreme Court challenges. And now President Biden is going to try to finish that work, right? And get us a public option. Well, that's how, that is the sausage making of public policy. And if you get caught up in the, in the things you have to give up to get the things you want, you, you can't do this work. You, I mean, you, you have to be excited about the wins every time they come. And I think that that, for me, like as a career, that would be the piece I couldn't do. Does that make sense? Like one of the things you talk about a lot for people who work in your space, um, but who work in other things like that where the work never ends, is that it can be really hard for people to feel like they are always 
always spinning as fast as they can to stay in one damn place yeah. and that they there's never a sense of completion and so um uh, a mentor that i worked with in the past used to he built rabbit hutches and he actually had a whole side hustle off of his like super you know consulting gig that was custom super bougie rabbit hutches because huh. he could come and finish yeah. the damn rabbit hutch. Yeah, yeah. that makes and sense. And that was the thing. He could tick that off his emotional box yeah. as a thing I fucking did yeah. this week. I really love to in the bathroom. That's why. There you go. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, And so, you know, I imagine that in spaces that are like that. So for me, in recruitment, I get a little bit of both worlds, right? I can be like, I got somebody a job done. Yeah. <laughs> they started yeah. the job. They're happy with the job. I can tick that off my box and move forward. And I know also like just as a mom for me, like one of the other things about my space is I have very clear metrics Yeah, on whether or not I'm good at what I do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I can give you 9,000 numbers to explain to you why I am a fantastic recruiter. <laughs> you do not get that in momming. Yeah. I have asked for KPIs. The little bastards won't give me any. They won't give you any. <laughs> no. <laughs> Monthly what? reviews are pandemonium. Yeah. Like, it's yes. ridiculous. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. But I would think in your sector, again, like, how do you set a KPI for That's somebody in your job? Easy. It's actually super easy, right? So okay. um, some of it, you know, if it's if it's straight up lobbying and on a particular bill, it's how many co-sponsors can you get on the bill? Can you get a floor vote? Vote? Can you get a hearing in a committee? Did it move out of committee? Can you move a, pe a piece of legislation? Those things are dependent on a whole bunch of other people, but ultimately, you know what you're you, you have you have very clear uh, KPIs. Sometimes it's can you build a relationship? How do you build this partnership? Can you? Um, um, invest our money in a way that'll get us a positive return and some um, reputational shine. Th th that's the easy part. Um, what is a little bit harder, the thing that's hard about the job is not the KPIs and the metrics, and it's also not the work. The hardest thing about the work I do now is there are no objective facts anymore. Mm -hmm. That is what is the hardest, right? People, our, our country has become so polarized. We, and we don't, we don't not, we don't all share one news source anymore. And it makes like, it makes moving public policy and having meaningful conversation about public policy very difficult. If you watch Fox News or you watch MSNBC, you have a very clear worldview. Mm -hmm. When I watch Fox News, I'm like, what? And when they watch MSNBC, they think they're, you know, they, they think the same thing. And that is the fundamental problem with the work that I do. How do you communicate with someone, not who just disagrees with you because their value system is a little bit different than yours, but really they literally do not accept the same facts or let me say it this way. They don't actually accept facts, right? They have created... We, we, I don't know why we started calling them alternative, alternate facts, but the fact like they, they either believe lies and mm -hmm. take those lies and opinion as fact, and they disregard fact, or the facts they do rely on are so myopic in their viewpoint that they, they don't paint a full comprehensive picture of what the problem is. That is the hardest thing about my job. So how do we, how do we fix that? How do we get back to a world that 
at least agrees on some baseline shit like yeah that where you you know we we fought fox news and they were told i mean it's clearly entertainment but clearly it's not right it in every way presents itself as news there are people who die on that hill every day right what do we what do we do either as individuals as a society as policymakers do we have laws that say if you lie in the news then we burn you to the ground i mean what do we do no it's hard because i don't i don't know what to do right i mean i think we've had a couple of big moments particularly in this last year that demonstrate to at least half of the country that leadership matters in a real way i mean you look at some of these countries, New Zealand, and how they've dealt with COVID or Australia, some of these other countries that have relied on, oh, I don't know, science. Um, and what we did and the impact that it's had on our country and in particular different states, right? It's mm -hmm. been an interesting road. I wish, and I know we can't do this, but I, I just wish we all watched the news at the same time every day and the same news anchor, right? And I think that is a huge disservice. I do think that social media has a fair amount to play here. And I think Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram really focusing on trying to fact check posts, particularly by leaders and pulling Donald Trump off, off their platforms was a big step way too late. Mm -hmm. But I also think, and it's so hokey when I say this to people, but most people do not understand how government works at all. I know people who are elected to office who don't understand how government works at all. And I do think, you know, a civics class, one civics class isn't going to change the world. But if people really understood the role that government plays in their lives, and it is a substantial role, then I think they would have more respect for it, right? The fact is, there's not a, there's not a single thing in your life that is not touched by government. I mean, I'm sitting here in front of my ring light, right? and my desk and my printer and my computer, I'm talking to you, all of these things, I mean, the internet could not have been created but for the government, right? No, Al Gore did it. Al Gore did it. Um, and this ring light, you know, Amazon couldn't ship if it wasn't for highways, right? I bought my ring light on Amazon. Apple could not have existed. Israel spends millions, billions of dollars creating innovation, creating companies that then come to the United States and produce significant jobs. We could do that right here. Government touches every part of our lives and people don't understand that. And they don't understand why that's a good thing. So that's one thing. And then I think, but then I'll say, this is a sort of a non sequitur, but the other issue is we finally had some events while people have had to sit home for the last year that I hope have focused in particular independence because everyone matters, but independents are who you're talking to in elections. January 6th and the insurgency and the attempted coup at the Capitol, insurrection, and then it, that was a moment where I think even people who thought, oh, Donald Trump is harmless, saw the real harm. Mm -hmm. What's difficult about that moment is during reconstruction, if you supported the Confederacy after reconstruction, you got kicked out of Congress. Well, so why aren't they? Why aren't we kicking out? I mean, you're there, you're in this space. I'm from Texas. I am 
delighted to drive to Ted Cruz's house hog time and bring him to you if that will help. I don't want him, just to be clear. And so if he, if he shows up at my house, it had nothing to do with me, all those listening in podcast land. Uh, I may have to go to Cancun, obviously. I mean, but, you know. well, he did jump over the wall to get there. So that was good. I think, look, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the revisionist history that we have watched happen on the Senate floor and with these members of the House who have decided to double down on the insurrection and the coup attempt. Um, for me, as someone who is both a student of Congress and I'm not religious, I have a spiritual experience every time I walk into the Capitol. That building means something to me. It is a powerful statement of the best of this country. The hardest battles that we have had to fight in this country, the, the, the existential questions and threats that we've had to address have all happened in that building, right? I mean, I became a whole person in that building. Think about that. Can you imagine me not being a whole person? I became a whole person in that building. And they walked in that building and they smeared feces on the wall. They put their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk. I have been able to walk every inch of that Capitol and I have never sat at her chair Never, met her a lot of times, never sat in her chair. Like the disrespect. So I don't know what's going on with our friends in the Republican party who think, who know in their hearts that this isn't okay, but have aligned themselves with a group of people and a set of beliefs that are by nature anti-American. I don't know what to do about that in, in the name of patriotism. I don't know. And that's, I guess that's for me, what is the most baffling that historically, again, I'm from Texas. They were always a little crazy down here. I'm not going to lie to you. Right. But they were crazy in a like fanatical letter of the law constitutional way. And now the crazy has moved. And it's like, it's the constitution as we choose to remember what it says. Yeah. And we're going to get pissed if you hold up and show us what's actually written there. And I, I just, I don't yeah. even know. And I think what's really frustrating for those of us living, just living in society and not at the top is that there is no more discourse. Yeah, there is no more discourse. But this is what I will say about that. And I'm gonna, this may feel controversial for some, but. The truth of this country is its foundations are in white supremacy. Yes, and we don't always like to acknowledge it because even I said it in my, my sort of previous speech, right? In this, even in this podcast, this is anti-American and yet it's so very American. Yeah. And the thing that's difficult for me as someone who really loves this country um, and believe in the opportunity that it can present, but who's also scared every single day that something might happen to my black boys, my dad and my brother, um, and all the black men in my life, let alone the black women. The thing about this country is that we have, we are committed to white supremacy and racism in a way that even I was surprised by on January 6th and post January 6th. Even, you know, they went to lynch Mike Pence, right? Those are only things, I mean, this is the truth of the matter. We've seen that reserved for people they thought were witches, women that they thought were witches, so women who wouldn't do what the patriarchy wanted, mm-hmm. for Black people, Native Americans, Latinos. Yeah. Racism turned on even white people. 
Like, come on. Come on. I hear you. I think that so, so then the question becomes what do how do you turn that on its head? And I don't I don't know the answer to that. You know, I somewhere in all of the dialogue that's been happening in the last 12 months, something came across my mental screen that was if you live in this country, you're racist if you're white. If you're pale skin, right? Like give it up. You've been taught every single thing, every single day of your life, things like it may be, you know, implicit bias, what have you, but it's there. And until you own that and embrace that, you can't start to change. And a little part of me got mad, Courtney, when I heard that. And I was like, well, first of all, this pale skin chick is not white. So let's go there. (laughs) But, you know, I also have to own the fact that Nobody thinks that I'm anything but a white girl when they look at me. Do you know what I mean? You and I walk down the street. We have a very different experience, mm-hmm. right? I may be on the books and genetically 50% Comanche, but like, come on now. So like, I get all of that. And I've had to come to terms with my own, like accepting and getting some with the, yeah, no, I am fucking racist. Yeah. Does that mean that I'm a dick to people who are darker skin than me? No. And I think that maybe there's something we've created the boogeyman that is that word. Yeah. And it should be the boogeyman that is that idea. Yeah. Not the word. And I think that somehow we need to get people to embrace that. Yeah. And I think that once, I, I wonder if that's where the disconnect is, is that people are so afraid that they're going to get painted with that brush that they think is an evil brush. Maybe. I don't know how to fix it because it's an evil idea. Yeah. And until we acknowledge it's that pervasive. This is the thing. I think white supremacy impacts all of us. Yeah. I think even, I mean, we all know this. People of color struggle with the impact of colonization and supremacy and and their view of themselves and other cultures, right? All the time. It's how you, how this sort of infighting around people of color has been created over time, right? Here's the thing that's been the most interesting to me over the last few months. So we've seen some, we've seen a significant increase in hate crimes across the board, across the board. Yeah. And the Asian American hate crimes have been, and Pacific Islander hate crimes have been particularly painful to watch. All of them have been bad. They're all terrible. What has been interesting is there were memes posted all over. Stop AAPI hate. Stop the murders against our Asian friends and family, right? And not once did people say, we should stop murdering everyone. We should stop hate against everyone, right? But when we say Black Lives Matter, all of a sudden it's, oh, no, 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 all lives matter. Yeah, they do, all of them. They all matter, they all do. So stop killing Black ones. How about that? That's a good start, right? What is so difficult about the conversation about race, inequality, discrimination, and supremacy in this country is we have never been able to have it in an honest, transparent, and I'm not gonna say um, in a way that's not hurtful, it's gonna be hurtful. It's gonna be painful to like sift through this stuff, yeah. but we we have to get to the other side of it because you look at, you know, George Floyd happened. Every murder before George Floyd happened. Every murder after George Floyd has happened. There's a system of oppression that has been allowed to be perpetuated that has taken racists off the hook, but said that systems are racist, but people are not. Except that 
people implement systems. And, and create the systems, right? So like the system And then continue to perpetuate them. That's yeah. right. That's right. If the system is, if it's the systems, the problem, great, then let's all agree that we're going to go radically change the system. But that's really hard because what does it mean to radically change the system? If we blow up this system, what will we be left with? I mean, look, I'll be honest. It has taken me a long time to get on the reimagining policing bandwagon, but I'm there. But it took me a long time because... You know, I have lived in communities that are affluent and I've lived in communities where there are significant drug trafficking and violence. And I'll tell you, I've, I've never been into a community that didn't want to work among people that didn't want to feel safe in their homes, who wanted to live amongst gunshots and drug trafficking, right? Never met anyone like that um, who, who said, oh yeah, I signed up for that, right? And the first call they make when their car gets broken into or something happens is to the police. But we do need to radically reimagine and change what this has become because what is true is black bodies in particular are not safe yeah. in the world of policing. And I, look, my family, half my family police officers. Um, and, and there's something about the system that continues to perpetuate this problem that if we continue to go on like this, we don't, we just, we just don't stand a chance. I think some, some of the statistics that to me were the most upsetting and the most jarring was I heard um, some studies done that even people of color, once they join the police force, within six months, their treatment of other people of color mm. has fallen almost in line with their white counterparts. Interesting. I hadn't seen that. That is a terrifying number. Like that, the speed... Yeah. with which that yeah. acculturation yeah. that de defining yourself as other from is terrifying and to me that says something about it's changing your identity fundamentally and it means that you are viewing yourself as completely other and that's that's dangerous yeah well and that's you have how to accumulate into the system mm -hmm. i mean that is the fundamental problem it's why um Derek Chauvin could have his knee on a man's for the, for the second or third time. This wasn't the first time he did this, by the way, because no one had died yet. Um, he could have his knee on someone's neck for almost 10 minutes and police stood around and said nothing, right? It, because it's a system, right? There's this story, I can't remember her name. I wish I could. This black woman who stopped a, a police officer like 20 years ago from putting someone in a chokehold and she lost her job. Finally, the state had to pay her back, right? But she lost her job for protecting the citizens, for taking her oath seriously, right? So there's a system that forces police officers, even those who want to do the right thing, and there are a lot who want to do the right thing, not to do the right thing when presented that option. That yeah. is a problem. That's a systemic and systematic problem that can be eradicated. Like we can fix it. But you got to be willing to acknowledge the problem and fix it. And that's, to me, that is what is the most insidious about racism. For some reason, some people in this country believe just acknowledging its existence somehow fixes it. Or, no, that makes the world blow up. Mm. Right? Like, that's the thing. Just acknowledging that racism exists and that Black people and Brown people have a very different experience. Mm -hmm is mind blowing to them and, and will completely, I, I don't know what they think it will do, but the, but, the, but the fact is racism exists. It has always existed in this country. Um, and, 
and what also is true is we actually can do something about it. That's what I think policy does. That's, you know, policy doesn't change hearts and minds, but it does set a standard. And that's why I'm in the world. That's why I do this work. And I, I think that I love that. I love that. Like every part of me wants to just get so excited about that idea because I am, I do think that some people, some areas, et cetera, struggle more. Yeah. Change. And they get so trapped in their echo chambers especially in this world, as you were saying earlier, of alternative facts, that they don't even know how far from reality they have strayed. And so the only way to fix it is to make some law that says, here is the fucking line. And we're going to make sure that you're at least going to be here. And we're going to worry about moving it here. And then maybe over the fuck there it should be next week and i i you know i have so much faith and i really just love all of that as an idea it get, like it gets me excited and makes me be like yes let's you know change the world you know all of that and i think that so many of us that were part of the blue wave that was 2020 and I, I know but i was hoping for a tsunami i'm not gonna lie so but um, they were part of that are a little frustrated that it, like in our minds and hearts, we were like, great, we got them in. Now day two, clearly everything is going to be fucking different. And I mean, that's not reality, right? That's not how the world works. But talk to me about that process to bring us back to reality a little bit for those of us that are feeling a little bit, but, but why haven't we fixed everything yet? What's the timeline? What's reality? What, where should people? Yeah, it's hard, right? I mean, I started working in government affairs. You, you know, this, I graduated from college in 2000, worked for, started working on the Hill in 2000. I left Tammy after a year and went to work at HRC. It is there where I started working most on the hate crimes law. That was in 2001. It passed and was signed into law during President Obama's first term. A long time. A long damn time. Right? So moving the the game of moving public policy is a long one. It is not, this is this is a marathon, not a sprint most of the time. So people just have to moderate their expectations. Change will come. It does come slowly and it often frustratingly so. But there's some other things that people need to be focused on right now, right? So we want we won the House. Obviously, we kept the House. We won the Senate. We got a tiebreaker with that amazing yeah. president that we have, Kamala Harris. Um, we got President Biden in office, which is really important. And you you see the difference leadership makes. I'm vaccinated. People are getting vaccinated. Numbers, while not always improving. We're, we're vaccinated. Yeah, I feel you. Lots yeah. happening that is moving us in a positive direction. But this is what I want people to focus on. So we won, we won big. Not as big as we wanted, but we won big. And what did the Republicans do the very next day? They started working on ways to undermine the franchise. They started undermining voting rights. Now, they had been doing that, just to be clear. When we took away, when we changed the Voting Rights Act and removed, and the Supreme Court said we no longer needed preclearance because racism doesn't exist anymore. Um, States went to their worst devices, those who want to to undermine the franchise. And we saw it in Georgia. You're going to see it in Texas. It's going to happen in Arizona. There are 500, I think 526 bills across the country mm-hmm. to further restrict voting. You know, no more American of a principle than the vote, right? The vote. 
we have we are at war and we have to fight with every public policy tool we have now i don't want anyone to interpret this as me saying what donald trump said don't go storm the capitol but if you will storm the capitol do it by calling your member of congress and your senator do it by calling your local elected officials and writing letters to your local elected officials let me tell you something people think money moves politics and money has a role but I will tell you there is nothing more powerful than a handwritten note to a member of, of an elected body. So I want to problematize that a little bit because we get that advice a lot mm -hmm. on here. Yeah. <laughs> and consistently, I can't tell you how many emails, letters, phone calls I have sent to every goddamn Republican that the state of Texas winds up electing. And they turn off their inboxes they just don't seem to give a shit, Courtney. Yes, like, right. I think that- well, Don't Ted give a Cruz's, shit about what you think. That's right. That's right. Like, yeah. I was never going to vote for Ted Cruz. And my understanding from people at state-level politics is that he's not interested in my vote. I can write a million letters and he is not going to care. That's not going to move his needle. It's not going to change damn thing. Um, and that's really frustrating. Yeah. So yeah. writing letters in that situation- not helpful what is helpful other than turning so it to vote helpful. it's still helpful okay. how um, is it helpful tell, yeah. help me get excited about letter writing so look it's helpful because if enough people if you can organize enough people to do it uh it has an impact on him he needs to hear and know that his state is changing if he didn't see it this last cycle he will get you know he hopefully he will get to see it next cycle that that it's changing and it, it texas is changing not fast enough, not as much as we like, but look what Beto was able to do. Who would have ever thought he would have gotten as close as he as he actually did get? Oh, absolutely. It's unbelievable. I, I mean, this is still the land of Ann Richards. It is. I know it's been a long time since she was governor and, and been alive, but like- I worked on her campaign. I lobbied for Ann Richards back oh, in high school in the day. That. Thank you for that work. <laughs> You're so I think that's an important part, but this is the other thing that's important. Part of the letter writing, part of the engagement is also keeping the pressure up, forcing him to confront um, people who have a different view, constituents who have a different view, voters who have a different view by going to his town halls, by communicating with him in every possible way, by bombing him on Twitter, following, you know, poking him on Instagram. But the other piece is if you can get enough people mad enough, you can get enough people frustrated enough with the hypocrisy and the lack of integrity of some of these elected officials, you can get them voted out of office. I mean, look at Georgia. Look at Georgia. Who would have ever thought in Georgia, we'd have a young Jewish man <laughs> and a black pastor in two of the most powerful seats in all of the elected, the South. I mean, they, they're the two sitting senators. And you know what happened in Georgia? They went, oh, no, we can't have this. And they made it more difficult for black and brown people to vote in Georgia. So what my point is, we have to get activated. And not just you, because we are already no. activated. But yeah. we've got to help people understand the impact. And again, that's why I think January 6th was so important. Because it was an opportunity for people to see that we aren't crazy. We've, we've been telling you this is going to have unbelievable consequences. And then it did. Yeah. And then it did. And so my hope is, and this is what I'm praying for in Texas, is that we will see those independents who 
you know, every election circle, like, I don't know who I'm going to vote for, say, yeah, this Republican Party has gotten too, too far out of hand. We need to, we need a check for them because this is insane. That's also part of the beauty of Ted Cruz's hypocrisy. You've been trying to build a wall around Mexico. Your state is suffering in an unbelievable way. And your ass got on a plane to Mexico? They should have kept him. I'd have been fine if they'd have kept him, Courtney. They didn't want him. They were like, send his ass back. Get out of here. But what I do think, I mean, I can't wait to watch the political ads. Oh, yeah. They're going to call him Cancun Ted. I mean, you know what I mean? It's going to yeah. be great. And, and, and I will say the other progress that we've made is that even if you look at the Lincoln Project, now they've had some bad news, but the fact that Republicans turned around and said, what, those are the Republicans that I know, right? Yeah. That back when I was young and forming political views, I was like, I mean, they're not all wrong. Not those, all. those were the ones that spoke to me because I, so in my own politics, I am extremely fiscally conservative mm-hmm. and I just refuse to have morality legislated to me Yeah, in right. the land of the free. Right. And so I can't listen to a Republican platform because they're going to try to tell me who I can and can't love, yep. try to tell my boys who they can and can't be, including whether or not they can keep being boys or be girls or whatever the hell they want to be. And I can't vote for that. Yep. So you don't give me the chance yeah. as a Republican to listen to anything else you say because you're too deep in the crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You know, look, I never would have voted for Reagan ever, but this isn't Reagan's party. Mm-mm. This isn't even Boehner's party. This isn't Eric Cantor's party. Okay. Right. Like, that's what's crazy to me. They've gone so far afield at this point that. The only people who can stand up next to them are those who literally have the beliefs at the most, at the at the most outside margin. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how a party is successful. And I, a friend of mine said this to me recently, and I, I've come to believe that it is true. This is sort of the last stand of a dying breed. Like it's just they. This is not sustainable. The 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 demographics of the country will not allow this party to continue to to flourish. And so we'll die. Yeah. I mean, we're going to, it's going to happen. Right. And I think what is true is, but we have to keep up the fight. We have to keep focusing on making sure that we expand access to the franchise, that government responds to the needs of its people, that we're spending money in a way that doesn't give huge tax breaks to corporations while watching our people, our, the people who really generate economic activity in this country struggle. Right. The, the other lesson of the pandemic is if people aren't buying anything, our economy breaks down a little bit. A lot bit, in fact. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Absolutely. stock market does fine, but everything else does. Yeah. So I want to piggyback off what you just said to my uh, my next and probably last question because we're running out of time. But um, one of the things that pisses me the hell off as a voter in Texas is I go to the poll and I don't have an option to vote D. I don't have a blue option on about half of my local shit. And I get that in a state like Texas, local people actually have a hell of a lot more power on your day to day than you, than anybody thinks. What, who should be stepping up to fill those empty spots? Like where, 
who what does that look like? Because I think the the general assumption is you need to be hyper educated from a bougie school, maybe a lawyer, and you definitely need to have a lot of damn money. So are all those things real? What should that? You should run. Everyone should run. I mean, look here. I really, actually, firmly. You can manage my campaign, and I'm in, Courtney Snow. I'm ready. Let's do it. I'm ready. So for 20 years, I've worked with an organization called the Victory Fund, and we have trained thousands of people to run for office. And I will tell you, everyone who runs for office is just a person who puts their pants or dress on exactly the same way you do, right? And the reality is, if you believe you have some positive ideas and some smart ways to change um, the world, you should be running for office, right? For too long, we've had an ideal of who the person should, you know, Mayor Bowser people would have said should not have run for mayor. Keisha Lance Bottoms in, in uh, Atlanta, maybe people would have said she shouldn't be mayor. I know for a fact, people recently said Kamala Harris shouldn't be president or vice president, right? But having them at the table changes the game. And so what I say to people is running for office is hard. It is a lot of work. And the job of running for office is really just the job interview, right? But you have the opportunity to make meaningful and transformational change in some of the most important places for your kids, for your families, for your friends, and for your communities. And we should all do it. And yes, you have to raise money. Yes, you have to knock on doors and talk to voters. Yes, you might have to see your name on a yard sign, although not too many. Uh, and you will have to send people mail and get on the phone. But it seems to me it's better than the alternative which is letting people who have no business making policy for their own lives, let alone all of ours, make these decisions at every level in government. And too often, I'll say just two more sentences about this, too often people think they have to run for Congress or the White House, and your point is dead on. There's a mosquito board in Florida, it's very powerful. There are ANC commissioners in DC that are neighborhood advisory commissioners. They represent 2000 people, They literal neighborhoods, right? There are city council and county supervisor positions. There are all of these positions that make really impactful decisions about our communities. And if we run for those seats, well, if we're good people and we run for those seats, then good decisions get made. Yeah. Um, and good things happen in our communities and that's what we want. So I, I think everyone who thinks they might remotely be interested in running for office and who shares my political views should do so immediately. Okay, noted. I do have a practical question as a follow-up yeah. to that. one of the pieces of information that somehow went around when 2016 happened and then 2020 happened was that for a a startup nest egg that before to run for office you should plan to have about twenty thousand dollars that you can invest. Um, is yeah. that would you say that's real? Would you say that's bullshit? Would you bullshit. say? Bullshit. Here's what, I want to be clear. You do need money to run for office, right? These people Absolutely. who are like, I'm going to have a people powered campaign that costs money too. Like, yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. Don't, the, the, we, we should just get rid of that thought. But here's what, what we train on and what, what I did when I ran for office and what I recommend. Let's say you think you need a budget of $100,000. I raised 200,000 and some change to run for city council. The mayor here raised $3 million, right? The first third of your budget, you should know where that's gonna come from. 
And the way you do that is literally by writing a list of everyone that you know, have ever met, and how much money you think they're going to give you. So a friend of mine said, I want you to come up with the first $80,000, the first $80,000, $85,000, literally, who, what their name is, what their phone number is, and how much you think they're going to give. My first $77,000 came from that list. People think that only rich people give. Some of the hardest money comes from people who are well off. Most people give $100, $200, $500, um, and they're not rich, right? They're people who want to see their communities change or they're people that love you. So you, anyone can run for office. The first thing I would tell people to do is to find a good training program. And there are a bunch of them. The NAACP has one. The Collective Pack has one. Victory Fund has one. Uh, Emily's List has one. There are all sorts of organizations that train people on how to run for office. Get in one, The Democratic Party has them all over the country. So does the Republican Party too. Do that too. Um, but get get in a training program and learn the nuts and bolts of running for office, both being a candidate and working on a campaign, and also volunteer on campaigns and get a sense of what it's like, although nothing's like being a candidate. But run for office. The only way Ted Cruz is going to get out of office is by having someone run against him who can beat him. And maybe that's Beto. Maybe it's someone else. But we've got to, but people, we've got to organize, we've got to get ourselves, we've got to build a bench so then when it's time to run again for him, run against him or anyone else in the government that you want to take out from a statewide perspective, you've got good people already in place down the ballot. All right. I am going to get from you all of those links, yeah. I will put all of those in the show notes. Yeah. And hopefully people will listen to you and go and sign up and, uh, Fill my ballot with blue options. That would be fantastic. I would love that. And you should run. We can talk offline about that. So before we go, is there anything that we haven't talked about? Shout outs that you need to do anything along those lines? Well, you know, there's so many other things in my life beyond work. Uh, One of my favorite things in my my world right now is my Peloton. I found it. Yes, it is. It is. You see it all over my social media. Black Girl Magic, the Peloton edition. We are a community of more than 21,000 Black women who sent a Peloton in their fitness and wellness journeys. We have a weekly clubhouse at one o'clock Sundays, Eastern time uh, that people can join where we highlight members of the group and talk about fitness and self-care. Um, and people should, if they are Peloton users and Black women, they should join us uh, on in our group. Um, the other thing is I, I always want to hear from folks. So they should always check me out. My website is www.theblueprintstrategygroup.com. And people can always find me on social media. See Snowden52 on Instagram. CR Snowden52 on Twitter. Uh, always looking for new friends and definitely always looking for people interested in public policy. We will have all of your handles in the show notes so that people can definitely hunt you down and know all about you in all of your glory, um, including the uh, the Black Girl Magic Group on Peloton. I will pass the note around to the <clears throat> non-target demographic <laughs> members <laughs> that I have sent your way. Yeah, uh, they can't get but, in, but they can become my friend. Okay, okay. They're good guys. They're just mostly impressed as hell <laughs> that I know somebody who is a Peloton <laughs> goddess. You have no idea the street cred I got. By I love like, that. I absolutely love that. All right. Well, thank you so, so. Oh, the only thing I forgot to ask you that I ask everybody. So apologies. Uh-oh. How do you respond when somebody asks you how much do you make? Honestly. So 
I um I think it is a disservice not to talk about or prepare people for what they're going to make in these types of jobs. And government affairs jobs can range. So um, the most I've ever made in a single year is about $525,000. The least I have made was when I worked on Capitol Hill 20 years ago. I made $22,000 a year. If you don't know what that is every month, it's $1,100 a month. I will never forget that. Um, and as a business owner now, who knows what this first year is going to be like? Um, what I will say is you can have a very lucrative career in government, particularly if you do corporate lobbying and corporate work, you can have a very fulfilling career if you do nonprofit, um, and, um, uh, and, and sort of social cause lobbying around social causes. It is best when you can do both. You can also have a fulfilling career doing corporate work. Uh, it's just fulfilling in a different way. So I think everyone should be honest about how much money they make. I it agree. only benefits the bosses when you are not, unless you work for me and then you should lie about it. Um, but I think um, people need to know the businesses that they're getting into and what it pays. And people generally think lawyers, doctors, engineers make a ton of money. Government affairs and government relations, that people make way more money than I've ever made in the business. Uh, I hope to join them. But uh, there's a lot of money to be made if you are good at your job and great at building relationships. Awesome. So honestly. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. All right. On that note, I'm going to say thank you, thank you, and bye. <laughs> bye. bye, everyone. You've been listening to Hey, I Want Your Job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job.